All right, we're going to continue in our uh, series uh, on the Holy Spirit, and tonight we're going to look at the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. A lot of times when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we oftentimes immediately kind of default in thinking, well, that's just something the Holy Spirit's in the New Testament. But the Holy Spirit is uh, God, and God is in the Old Testament and the New Testament, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune Godhead. And so the role of the Holy Spirit is certainly evidenced uh, in the Old Testament. And just with this series uh, and talking about this series, that, uh, you know, this is uh, certainly we're going to hit highlights. It's uh, not trying to be comprehensive and covering every, every little uh, issue and uh, cross every T and dot every I. And uh, a lot of times when we talk about a series on the Spirit or when we talk about teaching on the Holy Spirit, again, not only do we think about, um, we sometimes immediately think about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the things that are spelled out uh, in Scripture in the New Testament uh, to the church. And we will get to that, but I think it's important that we... Um, Again, this is, a, this is a Bible overview, so by doing that, tonight we want to look at how the Holy Spirit, what role the Holy Spirit has in the Old Testament, where do we see the Holy Spirit working in the Old Testament, and we'll have some selective scriptures to look at that. And next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus, okay? So um, we're kind of just, again, giving kind of a broad overview and uh, presentation and trust that it's uh, helpful to you. And again, the goal of all this is to increase your, your uh, love, your knowledge, your appreciation uh, for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, rather than just kind of a narrow, limited understanding, but to have an understanding, appreciation of how the Spirit of God uh, has worked throughout biblical history in the lives of Scripture. So that's kind of what it were we're attempting to do. So let's talk about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament tonight. You have your handout. We'll follow that uh, fairly, uh, fairly well tonight. But we see right there in the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we see the Holy Spirit in creation. The Holy Spirit in creation. And so right there at the very beginning of Scripture we see the Spirit of God. Um, in the beginning, God. It's always amazing how the Bible doesn't start out trying to prove the existence of God. It's just straightforward. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and desolate emptiness, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And so, in the beginning, it says... And the earth was formless and desolate emptiness, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And we talk about spirit, uh, actually, let me finish, uh, click that extra part of that verse. Then we talk about the Spirit, um, the Spirit of God, Spirit, uh, Holy Spirit. We're talking about the same person of the Holy Spirit, okay? So here it. Uh, speaks about the Spirit of God. Your version might be uh, a little dim, might just say Spirit. But we're talking about the Holy Spirit. They're one and the same Spirit, okay? The Spirit of God, uh, really, we could, we could translate the Spirit of God, the breath or the wind of God. Remember, we've talked about that in times past, that in the Hebrew, the word for Spirit is ruach. That's the Hebrew word. Uh, which means breath, breath, wind. Remember Jesus in John 3 talked about the Spirit blows where it wills. Uh, so in the New Testament, the New Testament Greek equivalent of ruach, the Hebrew, is pneuma. So this is a study of pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. So ruach means spirit or wind, and we see the Spirit hovering or moving over the face of of the waters. Uh, it's not on the screen, but Psalm 33, verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their light. So throughout Scripture, you see this 
connection of the Spirit of God in creation. And of course, the Spirit speaks of the breath of God, the wind of God uh, moving over the face of the deep. Now, when we talk about in the Bible, we see how the Spirit works in various individuals. One of the characteristics of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is that the Holy Spirit uh, is selective and temporary uh, upon specific individuals. And we'll talk about that and contrast that with the promise and fulfillment of Joel in Acts chapter 2 and why that was so significant. But, it, but in the Old Testament, we see that the role in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, is uh, upon certain individuals, is uh, empowering certain individuals for certain tasks and certain um, uh, aspects of God's purpose. Uh, let's look at a few of these. Uh, and these are, again, in your, in your outline. We see in Exodus chapter 31, individual by the name of Bezalel. And the Bible says in uh, Exodus 31 verse 2, uh, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. So this individual who's called by God. And we see in 35.31, it says, And he has filled him, speaking of this Bezalel, and he, God, has filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, in all craftsmanship. This man by the name of Bezalel was one of the um, uh, individuals who was over the artistic design of the tabernacle in Exodus 31. And so God anointed, if you will, empowered this individual and was given special skills in the construction or design of the tabernacle. They were anointed by the Holy Spirit. And you know what? Again, we'll, we'll kind of refer things. You know, God still anoints people with not just spiritual gifts, but, it, but godly talents, godly abilities. And uh, sometimes we've made a uh, a hard-line distinction between uh, spiritual things and work-related things. But how many of you know that God has certainly empowered and given people abilities in what we might say natural abilities, whether it be in um, uh, construction, whether it be in design, architecture, uh, whether it be in banking and finance? You know, again, if, if everything is given by God and everything... Uh, has been made good before God, doesn't mean that human beings use it for good, then uh, your ability to be successful in your career or your job, uh, you need the gifting uh, of the Spirit of God, that God gives those abilities. And I think there uh, is a little example of that here in the uh, individual given to the construction of the tabernacle. Again, these are just a sampling. In Numbers eleven seventeen, we see this group. We're going to come back to them in a little bit, but they're referred to as the 70 elders, and they received some of the Spirit of God that was upon Moses. And the Lord says in Numbers eleven seventeen, and I'm not can't read for time's sake the entire context. Then it says, The Lord says, Then I will come down and speak with you there. Uh, and I will take away some of the Spirit who is upon you. He's speaking to Moses, and the Lord says, I will come down and I will take some of the Spirit uh, that is upon you, Moses, and I will put him, notice the personal reference, and I will put him, I'm not putting it upon you. You see that? I will put him upon them, these 70 elders, and they, these 70 elders, they shall share the burden of the people with you so that you will not bear it by yourself. Moses was trying to do everything and leading the people of Israel, and God anointed some choice individuals to serve with him and relieve the burden or the responsibility of the day-to-day uh, -day or whatever it was in the, uh, in the ministry to the people, in the serving of the people. Do you remember in... Uh, in uh, Acts chapter 5, I think, when uh, there, or Acts chapter 6, when there was the issue in the early church when you had the Greek widows and there was those who brought the complaint to the apostles that the Greek widows who were in the church 
were not getting their daily allotment or their allotment of food or care. And uh, the apostles said, look, we can't wait on tables. We have to give ourselves to the word and prayer. It doesn't mean that's beneath us. We won't do that. That wasn't what they were saying. It's just that they said they were recognizing they have a unique responsibility that God has called them to do. And then equally, there are people that God has gifted within the body to care for these needs. And so they chose uh, uh, seven, uh, it doesn't say they made deacons, the word servant, that's all deacon is, is just the word servant. We've kind of heightened it and made it into an office, but it just means servant. So they appointed seven servants, servant leaders, and appointed them to take care of the details of these Greek widows to care for their needs, you know, their financial needs. One of the things that the early church was beginning to feel was the economic impact of some of the early rumblings of persecution and whatnot, and so the church was very much involved in the care ministry of its people. So those individuals, uh, if you read a little bit of the criteria, one of the things, in fact, let's just look over there. I know we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. It won't be on the screen. You should bring your Bibles, because I may say something crazy, and you'll have to check it out. So, uh, but I don't think this is, this is crazy. But look over to Acts chapter 6, at verse 1. It won't be on the screen, so you'll actually have to pull it up on your phone or your, your Bible. But there's an important point I want to make here. Acts chapter 6, again, the church is growing. Remember, there's uh, you know, 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. Most people think it could have been up to six or 7,000. Uh, so the church was growing uh, uh, enormously. I mean, faster than, uh, than the apostles and their assistants could keep up with. And so in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Now at this time the disciples were increasing in number, uh, and a complaint developed on the part of the Hellenistic or the Greek Jews against the native Hebrews. So in the church you had uh, Jews, but you had some that were more of a Greek ethnicity and those who were of the Hebrew or Jewish ethnicity, but they were under one church, one body, and they were, they were, the issue was over the widows who were not getting the allotment of food. It was a complaint. Big shock there if you want to go to a church and never have anybody make a complaint. Right here, here we've got a church full of the Spirit of God, fresh, and the church is growing, and what do you got? You already got complaints, right? So that's uh, welcome to the party. Uh, and uh, they said, um, verse 2, it's not good for us to neglect the word. The apostles said this. But here's what I want you to see, see here. Look at verse 3, chapter 6, verse 3. And they said, Instead, brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation. And what does it say? Full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And later on, we see Stephen was part of those that were selected there. And in verse uh, latter part of verse uh, 5, it says, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So just kind of a, again, I read that just to kind of parallel a little bit of these 70 elders that, that were raised up to assist Moses in the care of these uh, Israelites that were wandering uh, they were wandering and they were wandering uh, in, the, uh, in the desert there. And we'll come back and talk about them in just a little bit. Look also in Judges 6.3, Gideon. Gideon. Uh, Gideon was a judge. This was in the period when judges administrated the needs of the nation. This is prior to the establishment of a king. King Saul was the first king over Israel and then David and Etc. But Gideon, uh, the Bible says that Gideon, in verse uh, 34 of chapter 6, so the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, covered Gideon like clothing. I like that. And he blew a trumpet, Gideon, and the uh, Abazarites were called together to follow him. And again, you can read on there, but I only want you to see how the Spirit of the Lord uh, covered Gideon with an anointing, with a special anointed uh, anointing of leading uh, God's uh, people and God's 
armies there and as a judge. In Judges 14.6, you see another judge of Samson. Now, in your outline, Samson is misspelled. It should not have the letter P in it. Uh, maybe I was thinking about uh, who was the Samson that used to play basketball. But anyway, but that's wrong. It should just be S-A-M-S-O-N. Uh, but you remember Samson, he was somebody who uh, was anointed of God, but at the same time he uh, failed God, and yet God uh, filled him to uh, perform some extraordinary acts and feats um, against the enemies of God. Judges 14.6, this is just a sampling here. There's many others, but I won't take time to read them all. And, um, and it says, "...and the Spirit of the Lord..." rushed upon him. You get that sense where, again, the Spirit of God, different than a permanent indwelling that we have in the New Testament, again, the Spirit and the work is selective and uh, demonstrated to, uh, when I say temporary, is upon individuals for tasks, specific tasks or duties that God is wanting to anoint them to do. So the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him so that he tore it apart as one tears apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hands, but he did not tell his father or mother. But you remember Samson was, remember there was a, uh, when he was captured and uh, they wanted to know the, uh, Delilah wanted to know the secret of his strength and all the whole story there, we won't go into all that. And then later uh, when Samson um, in Judges 15, 14, I don't have that, on the screen, I'll just read it. But it says that when he came to Lehi, the Philistines, remember the Philistines had captured Samson, had tied him up, and they were making sport of him, making fun of him, that this great, you know, strong man representing Israel, he can't do anything. It says the Philistines shouted as they met him. And then in Judges 15, 14, it says, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, so that the ropes that were on his arms were like flax that has burned with fire, and his restraint dropped from his hands. And you remember that he pushed, op- pushed those pillars, and uh, the edifice uh, collapsed upon that group of Philistines there uh, in that final... Uh, and of course, he died in the process there. But I just want you to see how a very specific event, individual, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson. Now, one example uh, in the Old Testament, again, prophets, there's many, many references to the Holy Spirit anointing uh, or, or uh, behind the words of the prophets. Uh, just, just one, uh, just for time's sake, was Zechariah. And it says, Then the Spirit of God covered Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest like clothing. I like how it pictures the covering, the clothing. And he stood above the people and said to them. So it was the Holy Spirit that God anointed Zechariah to speak or prophesy to the people. And there's numerous examples in Scripture of the Word of the Lord and the Spirit uh, and the prophets. Take your Bibles and look over uh, to First. Samuel 10. I want to look at Saul, and I want to look at uh, David, okay? Um, actually, I do... Uh, oh, yeah, sorry. Did I have that... Uh, let's see here. Okay, never mind. Uh, look, at, look at the... I want to look at the Holy Spirit's role in Saul. You remember, we're talking about Old Testament Saul, not Saul who became Paul in the New Testament, but Saul, who was the uh, first king over Israel. And you remember how the people uh, came to the prophet Samuel? Samuel really was kind of a, a combination of prophet and judge. He operated in both. Uh, really, he operated in some regards as a priest, even though he was primarily uh, classified as a judge. It was during the period of the judges. But functionally, he operated as a prophet and a priest, uh, even though technically he, his business card said judge, okay? But he operated in various roles there. And so the people became dissatisfied with uh, the leadership setup 
over the nation of Israel. And uh, they came to Samuel, and they, uh, they, to paraphrase, they said they wanted a king like all the other nations had. In other words, who was their king prior, or even though Samuel, he wasn't a king, but who was the king over Israel? Who's always been the king over Israel? Okay, Yahweh. And, and uh, so um, God uh, spoke to Samuel and said, uh, uh, they've not rejected, you know, he was kind of feeling as though he had failed, they had rejected him, but the Lord told Samuel, look, they've not rejected you, Samuel, They've rejected me. Basically, what they were saying is, we don't like this setup with God ruling us. We want a king like all the other nations. And what made Israel unique was that it was not like a nation, like all, or not like all the other nations. Yahweh, God, had birthed them, and He was leading them. And uh, God allowed that. You know, there, are, there is an aspect of God's permissive will where he will let you have what you think you can't live without. Has that happened to anybody besides me? So, you know, uh, sometimes what you ask for and you think, whoa, it must be the will of God. God answered my prayer. No, it may not be. He might just give it to you in order to lead you and to teach you, uh, especially when it's something that you're maybe rejecting his will over a certain area. So what happened here? And look in uh, uh, chapter 10, verse 1, that uh, they found somebody that made People magazine as the sexiest man alive. He was, Saul was a good-looking, tall, uh, probably would have made the covers of all the, all the fashion magazines. I mean, he, he looked like, we want a king like that. I mean, he looked like somebody that could represent them, and, you know, he, he had the, the looks, he had the strength, he had all that, but more importantly, uh, God allowed Samuel to anoint him. And the Bible says that Samuel took the flask of oil. Remember, oil is also one of the symbols of the Spirit, okay? Uh, took a flask of oil, poured it on Saul's head, kissed him and said... Has the Lord not anointed you as ruler over his inheritance? So the Lord allowed the prophet Samuel to anoint Saul as king. Uh, later it says then, uh, verses 9 through 10, uh, that Samuel tells Saul of a series of people that he'll encounter, and it culminates in a group of prophets that he encounters. Uh, and again, I don't have time to read context, but hopefully if you're curious about some of these, you'll look them up on your own. And then in verse 9, 1 Samuel 10, it says, Then it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel, this is Saul, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, that God changed his heart, and all those signs that Samuel had told him about came about on that day. And when they came there to the hill, behold, a group of prophets met him. And we don't know much about, we don't know anything about these group of prophets. We don't know where they came from. We don't know what they were saying. We don't, we don't know what they were traveling and doing. It just says there was a group of prophets. And the implication is they were legitimate because it says it in a very pro, uh, positive way. And so as they uh, came there to the hill, behold, a group of prophets met Saul, and notice the language, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him so that he, Paul, I'm Paul, Saul, Saul, he began to prophesy. And it's interesting because in, uh, let's see, I don't think I have it. Uh, no. Uh, the next verse that it says is that people were amazed and essentially were saying, can you believe it? Saul is prophesying like, I mean, they were shocked because he wasn't necessarily somebody that was predisposed necessarily or they saw as a prophet or whatever. But what I want you to see here is that this was an evidence, if you will, not only to Saul, but I think also to those that were around him who were going to 
follow him as the leader, that the Spirit of the Lord was upon Saul. You with me? So the evidence, if you will, of him prophesying, and again, prophesying is speaking forth the word, that he began to prophesy like these prophets. And they said, can you believe it? Saul is numbered with the prophets. I mean, like, anything could happen now. I mean, you know, they were just, they were surprised there. And I think that's in verse 11, which I don't have up there. But I want you to notice how the Holy Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, how the Holy Spirit uh, anointed Saul and also transformed Saul. That Saul, even though he was uh, young, strong, handsome, all that, God, in His grace and mercy, allowed Saul to have the anointing of the Holy Spirit to lead Israel. Okay, He didn't have that previously. He needed the Spirit of the Lord, and God did that. And unfortunately, it didn't last very long that after a while, a very short while, that Saul no longer depended upon the Spirit of God, depended or leaned in on God, but that Saul began to act presumptuously and in disobedience. In 1 Samuel 13, I'll read that in just a minute, but just to give you a little context, uh, in 1 Samuel 13, verse 8, the nation of Israel was facing a major confrontation with the Philistines, their enemy. Okay? Samuel told Saul, remember Saul is not a prophet, just because he prophesied. He's not, he doesn't hold the office of a prophet. He's not a priest. He's not a judge. He's the king. Has the spirit of the Lord. Samuel, who still is, if you will, the spiritual leader of the nation, uh, told Saul uh, that one of the things that was, was to be done before the Israelites would enter into battle is that they would offer a sacrifice of worship before the Lord to consecrate themselves before the Lord before they would engage in warfare or battle. And Samuel told Saul wait, Um, he said, wait seven days until I show up because the law prohibited anyone except a priest, uh, someone who, you know, priests, that's why I said Samuel kind of was a bit of a hybrid function in this stage of Israel's history as a priest. Only he could legitimately before the Lord offer a sacrifice as the worship. Only he was legally, under the law before God, was allowed to do that. Seven days, he said, wait. Seven days came. Philistines, they can see them. Fear is starting to rumble among the Israelite camp now. They're just waiting, and the, uh, the armies in their eyes are getting bigger and stronger, and there's more nervous and more trepidation and more fear. And Saul begins to feel the pressure from the people to do something. Why aren't you doing something? Why are you just standing there? Why don't you do something? And he's like, where is that Samuel? Call him on his cell phone. Find out where he's at. Well, he's stuck on I-4 around Champions Gate. He can't be here. And Saul makes a spiritual, critical mistake. And the Bible says that Saul said, give me the sacrifice, I'll do it. And he himself And as soon as he did that, guess who shows up? I mean, you ever had a parent show up that, I mean, just after you did the thing you weren't supposed to do, I mean, it's like, it's I don't want to say it's humorous, but if you read it, Samuel shows up right after he does this. And Samuel, in verse 13 and 14 that is on the screen, but Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly, 
you have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, for the Lord would now would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And in 1 Samuel 15, 35, it says, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, though Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now, when it uses words like that last sentence, the Lord regretted, that's just a, that's putting it in language that is our language. It wasn't like the Lord did not know that that would happen. But in the sense, it's conveying that the Lord was, was grieved that really Israel had chosen that route. Okay, Remember Romans 1 says, speaks about the sinfulness of mankind. And it says that because of their continual rejection of God's authority in their life, that God gave them over. It doesn't mean that God made them do evil. It means that his restraint, he gave them over. He, in essence, he gave them over by removing his hand of restraint. And so it's language, human language, that expresses the heart of God, that he was not happy with this, but that, that when he says he regretted, God didn't say like, oh, man, I wish I didn't do that. Like, God learns things. He doesn't learn anything. It's just language You've heard me talk about this term anthropomorphism. Anthro, we get anthropology, man. It's just human language in trying to describe God's actions and God's ways. So when it talks about God regretted that. But we see that uh, God had rejected Saul as king. But God raised up one that was going to be after his own heart. And we see again the role of the Holy Spirit here with David. David. Uh, in uh, 1 Samuel 16, 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long are you going to mourn for Saul? You know, Samuel loved Saul, but was grieved over his sin. How long are you going to mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Now even though God had rejected Saul, there was a time factor before David uh, ascended to the throne, okay? Years. Even though Saul was operating under the disfavor of God, God had already uh, anointed David or already had a king set for himself. And he says, Why are you going to mourn for Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go... And I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, because I... Now, this is different, because Israel, they chose. God blessed it, if you, you know, in that sense. He blessed their decision. But now it says, I have chosen a king for myself. Israel chose a king for itself. God says, now I've chosen a king for myself. And we know the Bible speaks about David as a man after God's own what? His own heart, all right? So he says, I've chosen a king for myself among Jesse's sons. And you remember when Samuel came to the house of Jesse? And he went through and he was looking at all the sons of Jesse. And then Samuel said, is this, all, this, this is all your sons? Like, not, not, not here in the, you know. And then uh, Jesse says, well, no, I mean, there's a, my, my kid, my kid, young son, he's out taking care of you. I didn't even bother. You want to have family rejection? Jesse didn't even think highly enough of David to even just invite him to sit on the sidelines and maybe watch one of his brothers be king. I mean, that's how little dad, and I'm not saying that makes dad a bad guy. I'm just saying... He was just not on the surface because the Bible in this same storyline context says that for man looks upon what? The outside, but God looks upon 
the heart. And so, you know, when he called David in, the Bible says that Saul or Samuel anointed, uh, anointed him. So he sent word, Jesse sent word and brought him in. Now he was reddish with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, arise, said this to Samuel, arise, anoint him. Don't, don't again, anoint, uh, even though it don't, it's not a direct Holy Spirit, but the anointing is a symbol of the blessing and the Spirit. Uh, and the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. I always wonder what they were thinking about. Like, what? I mean, anointed him in the midst. You know, David had three anointings. Study it some. There's three. You have this is his first anointing among his family, among his brethren. Then he was anointed king over Judah. And then lastly, he was anointed king over the entire house of Israel. Three anointings at three different stages in his life. Sometimes God's purposes and ways that he works in our life, he doesn't back up the truck and give it to us all at once. How I many of you know sometimes there's a progression of God's anointing that he works in people's lives oftentimes. And so this is the first of three anointings of David, first with his brethren, then among the tribe of Judah, and then over the entire house of Israel. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and look at it here, and the Spirit of Yahweh rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel set out and went to Ramah. Um, now the Spirit of the Lord left Saul, and it says an evil spirit from the Lord. I'll let, you, I'll let you work with that. And it says an evil spirit of the Lord, from the Lord, terrified him. Listen, when God, in this case, Old Testament, we'll refer to this in a minute, but God removed His protection, God removed His favor, anointing, whatever terminology, guess what that did? That opened up Saul. He was left without any protection, spiritually speaking, and he was left to his own devices. Again, I keep going back to thinking about Romans 1, is that they were left to their own thinking because God had removed his hand of restraint. Interesting verse. You know, when you think of David, and you think of, and one of the things that's important to talk about when we talk about the Holy Spirit, uh, and we've talked a little bit, you know, certainly about this in our study in John and different things in the beginning here, is what the Holy Spirit does is it connects us in a personal, intimate way with knowing God. We're not just knowing about God, but we're knowing God in a, in a deeper, intimate way. There's people, again, that know about God, but the Holy Spirit has come so that we can intimately have the very presence of God dwelling inside of us. That's what Jesus said. When the Holy Spirit comes, He will come in, up on, inside of you. He will live inside of you. That's why Jesus said, it's better that I go back, that I ascend. And so David, if you know anything about David, and you think of the Psalms, can you think of anybody that had more of an intimate communion and relationship with the Lord? How did that happen? Well, I believe it was because this Holy Spirit here in the Old Testament was upon David's life. In fact, even, even at one of the darkest periods in David's life, when he had committed adultery, and he did a lot of other things that God was not pleased with, but when Nathan confronted him, over his adulterous uh, union with Bathsheba. Remember when Nathan came into the king's chambers or whatever, and he told him that little story about this man uh, that had a little lamb, and some, some man 
took advantage of that and stole it and killed or whatever. And remember how that raised David's ire? Give me that guy. I mean, he just, like, I mean, he loved pets, right? I guess. I don't know. But I mean, he, he just, he was aroused of the injustice. And again, you know, sometimes you read Bible stories, and that's where sometimes Hollywood tries to interpret it. And oftentimes they do a good job, you know, in trying to visualize. Uh, I think that's why people love The Chosen so much, because you're like, wow, that kind of seems like, that could be like, you know, that, you know, or whatever. But we don't really know. So I don't know if Nathan put his finger in his face. I don't know if he yelled it at him or if he just said, sometimes I think David, I mean, Nathan, think about I mean, Nathan's a prophet of the Lord, but the king could take him out like that. And to confront the king over a secret that if it got out on Instagram, would cap, would collapse, I mean, it would cause scandal. And don't think everybody around the little, his, his little entourage didn't know what was going on, all right? But they weren't going to, I mean... Who are they going to confront the king over this? But Nathan had the courage, and I believe the courage of the Spirit of God, to confront him. And so I used to always think that Nathan, you know, put his finger in his you were the man, you know, that's a good fundamentalist way we like to look at things. You know, you're the guy. We like that. I sometimes just wonder if he just kind of mumbled it. said, that's you. And David's like, what? That's you. Speak up, man. I can't hear you. That's you. You're the man. I don't know. But it said immediately, David, see again, he was a man after God's own heart. Saul seemed to be convicted he got caught. David was convicted. And you see in, the, in Psalm 51, which is attributed to David writing... As a, and it's interesting how David responds and communes with the Lord, and much of you know the Psalms or all of the Psalms. I mean, in in Israel in the early church, I mean that was the hymn book, that was the prayer book, if you will, because they are written. You know, you're struggling in how to pray with the Lord and commune with the Lord. Pray and read the Psalms because they get real personal. And he says in verse 11 of Psalm 51, Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He didn't say, Man, don't let me lose the kingdom. Don't let me lose my office, my power, my whatever. What was the thing that was most prominent that he feared, if you will? If we could, he did not want to lose the Spirit of God. Saul seemed to, you know, like Esau and his birthright, just, you know, whatever. You know, he's hungry, whatever. You want the birthright? Take it, you know. Um, but David, that the presence was so, you know, was so precious to him. Now, I believe as New Covenant people, uh, while that was an aspect of the Old Covenant, uh, I don't believe for the born-again believer that, the, uh, that God is withholding or ta would take away His Spirit. Now, let me clarify that. We know from the Bible, the Bible says in Ephesians 4.30, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Acts 7.51 says we can resist the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says we can quench the Holy Spirit. But see, again, it's not this idea that, well, I'm saved, I did sin, I got unsaved, and now i got to get saved, and i got to get to the altar by Sunday and get resaved. And, you know, I kind of grew up a little bit in that mindset. It doesn't mean we won't feel the displeasure of the Lord. But unlike the Old Testament under the New Covenant, uh, to me, I don't see where God is pulling and pulling and pulling, pushing and pulling, taking away the Spirit, uh, giving it the back and taking it away. But we certainly feel and should feel as, as believers with the Spirit of God dwelling in us as believers, we certainly should and have sense when we have grieved the Spirit of God. 
Remember I said that that word grieve can literally mean we, to hurt one's feelings? Romans 8 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation. But it doesn't mean there is therefore now no conviction. And one of the dangerous things, and I think maybe even a little illusion of Saul is this, is we become so callous to a sin in our life that we have become no longer sensitive to committing that sin. We become so used to doing it. Does that mean we lose our salvation? Well, I don't think so. It could show that we've never really were born again to begin with. Again, not to get into that discussion, but I just want to point out, I'm not, I may not pray, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, but I certainly can pray as a new covenant believer, don't let me grieve your presence where I don't sense and know your presence in my life because of my sin. You see, because sin and holiness cannot dwell in the same house, can't dwell in the same person, if you will. Remember in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah saw that vision and the angels crying day and night, holy, holy, holy. What was his his response? Wow, that's really cool. No, woe am I. I am a man of unclean lips. Now, I don't think that meant he cussed. I think it means, again, out of the abundance of the heart, the what? The mouth speaks. I am a man who is an unclean person. And the angel of the Lord took one of those hot burning coals from the throne and touched his mouth. Even though it's not directly said there, I certainly see the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, pictured in that whole that whole uh, endeavor there. What about Moses? What about Moses? Spirit of God and Moses. Should have technically put Moses uh, before, but I wasn't sure if I'd get to him. Numbers 11. Uh, Spirit of God. It says, The Lord therefore said to Moses, And I want to just point out something here. I've just selected it. Um, Here's those 70 men. Gather for me those 70 men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting and have them take their stand there with you. Uh, Verse 17. Then I will come down... And speak with you there. Now look at the language here. And I will take away some of the Spirit who is... Notice capital S. Some of the Holy Spirit in you, if you could say that. Some of the Spirit who is upon you. And put Him upon them. And they shall bear the burden. We read that earlier. Uh, Verse 25. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, Moses... And he took away some of the spirit who was upon him, upon Moses, and he placed him, the spirit, upon the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. Yet they did not do it again. They prophesied. They spoke the word of the Lord. We don't know exactly what that was. We don't know the character of it. But let me point something out that's just a little preview, and this is just me. You may have a different take on it. That's all right. It's just a little bit of a preview of coming attractions. We know that one of the spiritual gifts spoken of in the New Testament uh, is a gift of what's called prophecy. Now, this is not, there's prophecy when we talk about end times, prophecy. I'm not talking about that. Prophesy is just to speak forth the word of the Lord, okay? Um, I had a little note here I made on that. Um, Let me get to the next one here on these uh, 70 elders. I'm kind of jumping ahead here. Um, Away from Moses. Uh, Let me skip, skip, skip. Okay. Uh, Verse 25. That's what I should have. Let me. So they begin to prophesy. And it says that Right after this, they're all prophesying, these 70 elders. We don't know what they're saying, but it, the language is implying 
that this is an evidence of the Lord. They're speaking forth the word. It's not presenting it as chaos. It's not presenting it as some kind of demonic manifest. It's presenting it in a very God-blessed manner that they're speaking forth the word. You with me? Okay. Uh, verse 25, um, I'm sorry, verse 28, Then Joshua, he showed up, the son of Nun, the personal servant of Moses from his youth. And what did he tell Moses to do? All these 70 elders are prophesying. A lot of noise. Sounds like a big, I don't know what it sounds like, but, you know, they're speaking forth the word in the clear languages. They're doing it under the unction of what? The Holy Spirit, that this is a visible manifestation, evidence of the work of the Spirit. I don't know how you read it any other way. And, and Joshua shows up. He wasn't there when all... And he shows up and just sees all this going on and tells Moses, tell him to stop. Like, it's like a bunch of Pentecostals. But look at this. I like what Moses said, verse 29. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? If only all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit upon them. Kind of interesting, isn't it? What is he saying? That there, when we get to the New Testament, we see something that I thought of very similar, where Paul tells the church at Corinth, he said, now I wish that you, what? All spoke in tongues, but rather that you would all, what? Prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edification. You know, we'll talk about, we're going to unpack all that. And it may take us a little while to kind of talk about it. Let me just give you a, this thought here. I believe that as when we come to that, I think that when we talk about prophecy, I think there's two categories when we talk about prophecy. Again, I'm not talking about end times prophecies. and I'm not talking about, talking about prophecy of the speaking forth the word by the Spirit of the Lord. And that's all prophesy means is to speak forth the word, okay? And I certainly believe that there's two levels of this. Um, those of you who men were in our theology study, uh, Wayne Grudem brought this out, but it may use different language. But there is certainly revelatory prophecy that the prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles, that became, if you could say, inscripturated. That there is prophecy, there is speaking forth the word, the recording of the word that we have today, and we call that Scripture. You with me? That's a level of prophecy. Remember Peter said, no writer of Scripture wrote prophecy by their own will or an interpretation. They were men who were moved by the Spirit of God. So that's... that's that's, a, that's the great level. That's Revelation with a capital R. Are you with me? But it seems as though in Scripture there is a category for a secondary level of prophecy that is never equated or recognized as apostolic revelation. We're not rewriting the Bible. We're not adding pages to the Bible. Are you with me? But there seems to be an aspect of speaking forth the word that is encouraged and legitimate that does not in any way be confused with that authoritative prophecy. In fact, Paul would say, and we talked about this a little while back, but Paul would say in um, 1 Corinthians 14, 29, Paul would say, that if somebody prophesies, let two or three in your midst, in the church, do what? Yeah. Judge it. 
he never ever said, hey, I'm, I'm writing this book of Galatians, and when you get it, why don't you guys get together over, go to Panera's, get together, and read what I wrote, and you guys determine whether it's of the Lord. No. He would rebuke him for doing that. He says, I'm writing to you the word given to me by the Lord. Read the first part of Galatians. He said, I didn't even go, when Jesus gave me this direct revelation, he said, I didn't even go and consult the big guys in Jerusalem to ask, is this okay? Is this okay? He's saying, I'm not accountable to them, but I'm not contradicting them. He's saying, this was a direct revelation from Jesus Christ. That's one level you and I will never operate in. But there seems to be a secondary level of speaking forth the word at the direction and availability and unction of the Holy Spirit that seems to be legitimate. If Paul would say, hey, if somebody speaks forth a word or gives a word, it's open to evaluation to make sure that it's conducive with the word of God, etc. Because that's our guide. What's interesting is that, let's go back to Moses. This activity of Moses where everybody, 70 elders are prophesying, this same Moses, we won't look at it, don't, maybe I don't have it here. No, I don't have it. In Deuteronomy 18, you can make a note there, Deuteronomy 18, 20 and 22, a whole chapter, Moses, who wrote the book of Deuteronomy by the Holy Spirit, wrote in Deuteronomy 18 the way that you evaluate a false prophet. And Moses himself said in Deuteronomy 18, verse 20 and 22, that one of the things you judge a false prophet is if they speak forth something and it doesn't come true, you know they're a false prophet. So it wasn't that Moses wasn't clearly instructing them on what bad prophecy was and what how to delineate between the word of the Lord and the words of the Lord. You with me? Because here he says, I wish all of God's people were full of the Spirit and were speaking forth the word of the Lord. P Moses and Paul don't seem to have any contradiction between holding both in their hands. You recognize? I mean, you understand what I'm saying? Because one of the arguments that we'll talk about regarding the spiritual gifts of whether they cease, the, the big argument is, well, the apostles died, so God isn't saying anything anymore. And in one sense, that's true. In the sense of revelation with a capital R, this is a final word. But to take that and jump to the other extreme, what do you do? What do you do with these verses? All right. You can read the rest. You can read the rest. I won't start it next week, but uh, look at those. Uh, everything else is pretty self-explanatory. But any quick questions that can be done in 30 seconds? Don't miss the fact that prior under the Spirit at the close of the uh, Old Testament era. Don't miss how the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, Jesus' mother. By the way, you heard me say this before, Mary was baptized with the Holy Spirit because she was in the upper room in Acts chapter 2. So, Roman Catholics who think the perpetual virginity and anointing of Mary, you got a problem with that. Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, says the baby Jesus leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, was filled with the Holy Spirit, Luke, not Luke 1. John the Baptist, while he was still in his mother's womb, was filled with the Holy Spirit. In the Spirit upon the Messiah, Jesus stood before his own hometown in Luke 4 and quoted Isaiah 61, it says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's the Holy Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He connected that. And you know what they did afterwards? They didn't have pastor appreciation afterwards. They all figured out how they were going to kill him. Because he quoted that and attributed it to himself. 
And of course, we know the Old Testament promise of Joel 2, that when Peter said, don't think that these men are drunk, like some of you are saying, he said, this is that which Joel the prophet said in Joel chapter 2. This is the fulfillment of that very scripture. So, Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, if the work of your Spirit is so full in the Old Testament, why would we think it's any less in the New? Why would we dilute it under the New Covenant? There's so much fullness that what was done in temporary, incremental, specific ways, the fulfillment of Joel 2 says, in the latter days, I will pour my Spirit upon all flesh, all people. Men, women, young, old, all people. So Father, help us to love your Spirit, to walk in your Spirit, to be receptive of your Spirit, not grieve your Spirit. And we bless you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Think about that, of how, and again, this was just, this was, this was skimming. If the Holy Spirit was so prominent in the old, why will we diminish the Spirit? If the New Testament is more and fuller, why do we want to dilute it and think it's anything? It's less. Just a thought. All right, God bless you guys. Hope you have a good night.